0: and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen.
1: And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics, as we do twice a month. Mooney, it's been a while since we talked about Africa, and it's impossible to generalize about this vast continent, which is more than three times the size of Europe and North America. But we're going to try to touch on a couple of trends some common issues, and with the help of our guest, renowned Africa expert, Jakey Chilliers, a bit of forecasting. Let's start with one staggering, staggering statistic underlined by the Council of Foreign Relations. By 2050, Africa's population will double, and by 2100, one out of three people living on this globe will be African. Do I have your attention yet?
0: Well, you have mine, Peter. That is indeed staggering. Having 70% of the population under 30 is a great opportunity, of course, but When you think about the economy, the social indicators that could improve dramatically and absorb the enormous labor force, it's also a one-way path to worsening poverty. How are you going to feed these people? How are you going to employ them? The continent faces the same global challenges the rest of the world, economic recovery from COVID, accelerating health problems, a retreat of democracy, dependence on commodity. I could go on, terrorism, proxy wars, a devastating food and climate emergency, among others. So they have the entire menu of global issues. And the looming world recession that, as we had discussed in recent episodes, especially the one on food instability, is hitting really hard, especially in fragile countries in Africa who are already facing economic crisis.
1: As many of you guys know, I'm a a big fan of a number of African countries where I've been to visit a lot of times have many friends and i always worry that we're forgetting where africa came from you know remember that the continent experienced a whole decade of growth in the late 90s and early 2000s a- after being you know seen as the continent that could never go anywhere that was you know that had to be people had to feel sorry for all the time and 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 during that time economies did grow and social indicators improved young people were educated china's belt and road initiative built enormous infrastructure and changed the manufacturing capacity and all that pulled millions of people out of poverty in countries like kenya and tanzania in the east or nigeria and ivory coast in the west and the first happy decade yes it's true stopped pretty pretty short with the 2008 financial crisis and the threats today are COVID and the Russia-Ukraine war, which could be a tipping point. But I always am a little wary of being too negative on Africa, even though it's true that right now there are millions on the brink of extreme poverty and there's a big trigger for political instability. So the big question Today is how much of Africa is being left behind on health. Vaccinations are at a global low. How much of Africa is being left behind on education or on infrastructure and other social indicators? Nowhere, nowhere is that worse than the horn of Africa, an example of the region's existential climate threat woven onto a war, woven onto spreading Islamic extremism, woven onto sort of poverty.
0: There's also the component of extremism that you mentioned, and terrorism is on the rise everywhere in the world, but it's very much on the rise in Mali, in Somalia, Niger. Indeed, in all of the Sahel, which is a Common area of organized crime, intimidation, and violence caused by extremist group, and we do have a, a couple of years ago uh, an episode that you could, you know, read into, and it's still relevant. The terrible attack in Burkina Faso in 2021 is an example of the story of breakdown of society and security in a country which was previously a relatively peaceful place. And the causes, well, there's multiple causes, mutiny, marginalized groups fighting each other, small uh, Somali pirates, militias funded by third countries, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and others, as well as bloody homegrown groups like the very well-known Boko Haram, have, who have uh, created a foothold, Peter, that expands despite the best efforts of the attempts to stabilize the region by the U.S. and the well good intentions of France. They've also become a last resort for many young Africans. So let's talk to Thea about this new generation.
2: Hi, I'm Te Ivanovich, and this is Teas Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And you said it, Peter and Mooney, Africa is the youngest continent on Earth. Estimates say young Africans will make up 42% of the world's young people by 2030. That's, that's huge. And like you mentioned, the continent as a whole is plagued with security issues and climate change and unemployment and it's hard to talk about such a diverse continent as a whole as as you've also said but today i'd like to talk about one shared issue and it's it's a negative one unfortunately and it's brain drain A new survey conducted across the continent showed that 52% of Africans between the ages of 18 and 24 want to leave their country in the next few years. And young Nigerians have the most negative opinion of the whole continent about the direction their country is headed with 95% of them saying that things are going badly. Of all those surveyed, just 28% felt positively about the trajectory of their nation. And many of them are planning to leave. Afrobarometer found that one in five depend at least a little bit on cash payments that were sent to them from another country by a family member who has already left their home. And a quarter of those surveyed say someone in their family has lived in another country during the past three years. But what's interesting is that the most popular destinations are not in Europe or North America, but they're actually within Africa. The issue is that citizens of African countries do still need visas to travel to more than half of the continent's 54 countries. So actually, less than 10% of those surveyed surveyed are saying that they made plans to leave. So they're, they're they're really wanting to leave but they're not able to make those specific plans yet and that's a really alarming statistic too so many people want to leave but they can't so either they don't have the economic or educational means to make the trek abroad and start their new lives or they simply can't get the necessary documentation to make the move and i'm concerned that that leads to a lot of unhappiness and you know potential issues within the countries themselves so my take is not that shocking for a continent economy to overcome its problems and to grow, security issues need to subside and start dealing with climate change. Leaders need to retain young people and provide employment opportunities for them. But, hey, that's merely admiring the problem, of course. What are your thoughts? Tweet at Altimar Podcast and let us know.
0: Even so, there is some good news on this incredibly diverse continent, despite their cultural, economic, and geographic diversity. Africans, and as a Latin American, I am jealous, have managed to take some steps towards building an integration agenda, like really specific steps, efforts to create a free trade pact, the African continent free trade area, promise to eliminate trade barriers, deepen economic ties, work together for regional development. So all this has teeth and it's happening while the world is going in the opposite direction. So if Africa succeeds, This would be the biggest free trade area in the world, which encompasses 54 countries, 1.3 billion people, where 41 countries have already signed. Although slowed by COVID, they still continue negotiations and they are definitely a really positive example for the world.
1: This is a good time to introduce our guest. Dr. Jakey Silliers is a well-known Africa analyst, author, and popular commentator. He's the founder of the Institute for Security Studies and served as its executive director until 2015. The ISS is a regional think tank with offices in Dakar, Addis Ababa, Nairobi, and Pretoria. Silliers has presented numerous papers and published a number of books on matters relating to peace and security in Africa. Silliers is also an extraordinary professor at the Center for Human Rights and the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Pretoria. He's written multiple reports and dozens of books. Welcome, Dr. Silliers, to Altamar.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to the discussion.
1: So, you published a book last year with a very positive title— Africa first, igniting the growth revolution. So in the introduction to, before your arrival on the on the show, we went through a bunch of bad news on the African continent. So tell us a little bit about the good news story.
3: So our work has progressed quite a bit since that book was published. Actually yesterday, which would be Wednesday the 22nd at the time of this recording, Uh, President Ramaphosa launched a massive website that we've built, which is really on the long-term future of of Africa. And we model the long-term future of every African country. We look at uh, what we refer to as its current path, also the business as usual or base case forecast. And then we modeled 11 sectoral interventions for every African country. And um, so the whole story about Africa first igniting a growth revolution is really what needs to be done to start closing the growing gap between average levels of income in Africa and average levels of income in the rest of the world. This is a gap that has been growing since the 1960s. So important to understand that things are improving in Africa, particularly since the 1990s but slower than improvements in the rest of the world. So while things are improving at a general level, as much as one can generalize on 55 countries, Africa is falling further and further behind. So what we do in our work is we we look at what needs to, to be done to change that growing gap. So the growth revolution of Africa is really to model realistic Uh, forecasts on what is the impact of a low-end manufacturing revolution in Africa? What would happen if Africa really underwent an agricultural revolution, leapfrogging the implementation of the continental free trade area, and so on and so forth? And that is what we refer to as as the growth revolution.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about that potential, because It is a region of enormous demographic growth and also abundant natural, natural resources. These are all things that can give it a great potential. So what do you think is necessary to create this manufacturing revolution or this agricultural leapfrogging?
3: So each of those. So Africa's challenges with regard to growth are in a sense rooted in what happened, the way in which the African state was created to a large extent. The disruption, the fact that you didn't have an inside-outside process, which is how the Westphalian state was created. So in a sense, nationalism preceded development in the rest of the world. That has not happened in Africa. You have an imposed state. And that's that imposed framework was held in place by the Cold War, And it was um, uh, only, in a sense, at the end of the 1980, not 1989, around there, that Africa, in a sense, could find its own space in in the global environment. But because you have an imposed state formation process in Africa, this process of creating national identities, um, countries, uh, takes years. So at the moment, let's say, uh, let's make the basic distinction that economic growth comes from labor, capital, and technology. The one thing that Africa has, it has abundant labor, but its labor is poorly educated in poor health, and therefore labor, the contribution that labor can make uh, to growth, uh, lags behind Africa's potential. And in actual fact, Africa's great potential, the contribution that labor can make to growth, is also its greatest weakness because the rest of the world is, of course, investing in labor-saving technology. Uh, People generally underestimate the contribution that demographics make to growth. Uh, The uh, remarkable rise that China had, uh, the Asian tigers, even the so-called Nordics and, and the US, all had a lot to do with the contribution that labor made to growth. And the problem in Africa is an actual fact that we have such a young population that our dependent ratio um, means that you can't invest enough in education and health to make your growing labor pool contribute to growth. So when you ask me what has to be done on all of it, we can, you know, we mistake each of these sectors, but there's no magic bullet. Africa needs to do all of these things. It, uh, in our uh, language, it has there are 11 sort of structural interventions uh, that range from better stability, better governance, to an agricultural revolution, and so on and so forth, that have to be undertaken to really start closing the gap that I started speaking about in the beginning, this growing gap where things are improving in Africa, but more slowly than in the rest of the world.
1: And what what role you know one of the things we mentioned also in the in the run up just before you came on was this the new africa free trade area and yeah. this is for in many parts of the world are now are now becoming more polarized more separate more divisive yeah. and yet africa is going to some type of economic integration how important is it?
3: It is hugely important. In our, our forecasting, our modeling would indicate that the full implementation of the African continental free trade area, which is what you refer to, can deliver more rapid poverty reduction and improvements in average income than any other intervention. And the reason is simple. Uh, that if you need larger markets so that African countries can trade with one another, because by trading with one another, they improve the value composition of their trade. They, in other words, go up the manufacturing uh, ladder. Uh, it's 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 very important. One of the reasons why Africa is not part of global value chains is because the, the individual market of 55 African countries is not big enough. As our populations grow, grow that is changing. But it is... an. one can almost say it is a prerequisite for growth. And when you make the point about the growing regional fragmentation that we see, very true. But there's global fragmentation and there is subnational fragmentation. But in actual fact, the movement towards uh, regional trade agreements, that actually is much stronger than this global fracturing that we see. Africa is behind the curve in that regard. So the continental free trade area is very important for the continent. It literally is, if you want to ask what is the most important of all the various interventions that we can do, regional trade integration is probably up there uh, at the top.
0: That's true. And I was just saying before that um, as a Latin American, I'm a little bit jealous of the integration efforts that are being advanced in, in, in Africa. So if Africa is behind the curb, Latin America is even farther behind. But um, I wanted to talk, talk to you about the Sahel and in particular the extremism that nobody yeah. has been able to get rid of. And we know that France and the U.S. have been you know, largely involved and, and seem to have at least in action Given up on the region? Is this another example of Africa trying to find their own solution and, and not depending on another another
3: countries? It's a little bit of um, you're right that in a sense uh, the France and the U S have sort of given up on trying to build their stability because remember it's important to understand that the spread of Islamic radicalism and uh, violent Islamic radicalism in Africa is very much as a result of NATO intervention in Libya, and the uh, war in Iraq, and the war in Afghanistan. And actually, I'm going, of course, it started with Afghanistan, Iraq, and then Libya. And those three events, in actual fact, dispersed radical Islam, violent radical Islam in Africa, and created much of the problems. And this is the reality that Africa has faced over many decades, and that it is forced to it is dealt a hand by the international community, whether, you know, depending on how far you want to go back on slavery, colonialism, imperialism, whatever. And then most recently, the war on terror, which has in actual fact created uh, the spread of um, violence, uh, particularly from, well, it comes from Algeria originally and so on and so forth. One can talk, but, but so... Uh, but the reality is that only africans can solve that problem and because we have large ungoverned territories where um, governments don't control the, the, these territories and largely traditionalist orientation in many of these or many of these countries it's a huge problem but, but the solution to this is not foreign intervention the solution is africans trying to find a way of dealing with this themselves whether that is through, negotiation through through violence, uh, probably a combination of a variety of measures, but uh, certainly the Western intervention uh, have created more instability very often than it has done the reverse, particularly where countries are weak and don't control their territory. So the fact that the US and France have stepped away from the Sahel, this is also the region that faces the biggest problem in climate change globally, probably. Well, it means Africans have to find a way of resolving this issue themselves, and that's not going to be easy. It's going to be messy. So at Altomar,
0: we often take the temperature of democracy in different regions and lack thereof more and more. For you, and and just in very general terms, what are the hot spots politically, countries in Africa where leaders are a source of concern? And then if if, if they are, and I'm sure there are, what are the bright spots?
3: So... um, Uh, democracy accompanies development. As countries become more rich, they become more democratic. So the recent downturns that we've seen now, firstly, if you measure relative democracy, the levels of democracy in Africa, given our level of development versus levels of democracy elsewhere, Africa is actually more democratic than you would expect given levels of education and levels of GDP per capita. So we have of a democratic surplus in Africa. Strange term, but it it is true. But what has happened with COVID and everything accompanying that is that governments, economic growth has gone backward. Governments have less revenues to spend on everything, education, health, including on security. And what has happened in a number of West African countries is that uh, military regimes, the military, have taken over. Uh, They always think they have a better solution. And the reality is that the resurgence of coup d'etats in Africa in recent years reflect the economic downturns. The long-term structural trend remains. Globally, I think, as well as in Africa. And that is then when stability returns to the world after Ukraine and whatever else. I tend to believe that the long-term, Trajectory towards improvements in in inclusion, which largely measure and track improvements in human welfare and well-being, will continue. So I, I think all that I'm saying is step back and look at the long-term trajectory. Yes, many challenges in the short term, but our, the democracy is quite alive in Africa because Africans' uh, states don't have the kind of authoritarian control that perhaps you would have in China and elsewhere. And Africans have experienced authoritarianism and they have the tools, social and other media, to want and desire the kind of freedoms that you often see in the West. So I'm less concerned about the medium-long-term prospects about democracy. I think, generally, I think that's fairly fairly healthy on the continent.
1: Let me go back, um, Jackie, if I could, to something you said about sort of foreign interventions. I mean, there has been one country one foreign country at of recent times that has intervened massively in africa which has been china and to a large extent much of its interventions has been positive um the amount of money injected through the belt and road initiative the infrastructure built the manufacturing capacities built in hindsight now with 10 or 15 years of the belt and road initiative behind us is has china's role in Africa, been a force for good, has it eroded democracy? How how do you see it?
3: It's generally been a force for good. China is now Africa's largest trading partner as a single country. The European Union remains our largest trading partner as a a bloc. Africa has got a huge infrastructure deficit and lack of investment. The Chinese, to a large extent, are coming to the party and delivering upon that. And also, increasingly, you find that even Chinese manufacturing Small-scale companies are establishing themselves in Africa for the African market. So many issues, and increasingly China is also concerned about stability in Africa. We see in the horn that for the first time, China is really trying to play a role on the peace and security side. The concern is that the example of China will draw down democracy, that it sets the wrong example. But what Africa wants, it wants to stay out of the East-West fight, if I can put it this way. Um, the U.S., um, Europe to a lesser extent, are intent on creating a, a narrative of good versus bad, authoritarian versus democracy and so on. And the Africans, as has always been the case, generally with an unaligned movement of saying, guys, what we need is we need development. We need, we need partners with both of you. We need, your, we need all of your support. And that remains true. What we see increasingly is that the U.S. in particular has again woken up to Africa, but it sees Africa as a battleground in its own fight against China, to a lesser extent, Russia. And now Africa suddenly is prominent, and you see a few delegations coming over from the U.S. to come and say hello. But if you look at uh, U.S., uh, and, and the U.S. is very important because it's the largest source of development assistance from any single country to Africa but its trade is going down its investment's going down and it is the largest source of capital for africa we need to un- we need the us <laughs> uh, desperately but in the absence of american investment and interest from the private sector we have uh, chinese interest and investment from the public sector
1: you took you took the the, the question from right from my mouth which is it just seems like declining u.s interest in in from the private sector declining u.s interest from the government sector yeah except except for the military yeah you know it's a it really is a deficit that the u.s just seems to be abdicate i don't know if abdicating is the right word but (laughs) there there certainly is a is a sort of growing disinterest
3: yes and it's very it's very evident and i think it's a it's, it's because the US interest is driven by the private sector and the private sector follows profit. And the, the irony of all of this is that the, the highest return on investment globally is in Africa. Uh, but we suffer from a bad rap. We suffer from, um, you know, the rating agencies looking at Africa and they would give us a lower rating than any country in, for example, Latin America. Whereas objectively, if you look at the risk uh, yes, there's risk everywhere, but even your stable African countries suffer from this. So, uh, and that's of course the the Chinese don't need to go to a ratings agency because it's largely government interve- uh, government money. So I, um, you know, we, we suffer from that. Um, we need foreign direct investment, we need private capital, but in the absence of that, you know, China is to a large extent has helped fill the African infrastructure deficit. Not it's helped, but you know, uh, and after China will come India and hopefully the, the, the growth of India will also lift us because we we still remain largely commodity dependent.
2: So, Jackie, I have a segment on Altamar about youth and social justice issues, so I, I want to ask you about that. And brain drain is a huge issue mm. um, across the continent, and more than half of youth between 18 and 24 want to leave their country. So, to me, it seems to be a bit of a chicken-and-egg problem Governments need to create employment and growth opportunities, but these dire economic conditions and security concerns are sort of preventing that from happening. So who's the chicken and what's the egg here?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think all, you know, um, throughout the world, we have this trend that you're well-educated uh, leave, particularly poor countries. So we are a net provider. I'm South African. South African doctors populate um, to almost the entire rural Canada and various other countries because we have excellent uh, medical training uh, universities in South Africa um, and that is just the reality of a of a of a world where educated labor is free to move poorly educated and skilled labor is not and is creating xenophobia uh, all kinds of problems. Um, also, for example, in South Africa, we face many, much of the similar problems to, to many European countries. And I think this is going to become, a, it's its a growing problem because what you find globally is that capital and in, um, knowledge uh, are, can move relatively seamlessly, but labor cannot. And we have, as we've discussed previously, a large growing young population. And um, when they get to a certain level of wealth, they become aware of the rest of the world and emigrate or try and leave. And I, I think that is just uh, almost inevitable. Um, and the only way to turn that around is to have greater opportunities domestically than there are internationally. And that is, you know, comes back to the issue of governance and the investment and opportunity environment that you provide domestically. But I think what we have to find a way of turning around is that and that is starting to happen is that at at a certain point people start believing in their own in the growth potential of their own countries, and when that happens, then things turn around investment starts going flowing back the diaspora start investing that has generally not happened in in much of Africa. we see a net outward migration of capital and skilled labor. And this is, uh, this is a problem. In some countries, like uh, a while ago in Ethiopia, you saw that Ethiopian growth, and Ethiopia's got a large diaspora community, was such that Ethiopians were starting to invest back in Ethiopia and starting to come back to the continent. So they could launch diaspora bonds and all of this kind of stuff. That generally does not hold for much of Africa so turning the chicken and the egg around requires that whichever comes first that we need to get our own house in order and and it always comes back to to what we do domestically the international community is not going to develop africa africans need to get their own house in order so even in
0: the global climate emergency this existential threat where the horn of africa is the epicenter Is there a role for the international community there and what is it and who can help? African governments, other institutions, humanitarian, who do you have hope with in trying to mitigate this emergency?
3: You know, we live in a world where everybody thinks that their country is in a particularly bad shape. I think we all probably on this call travel quite a bit. And one is always struck by the fact that you think your country is in a particular bad situation until you travel somewhere else and you realize these other guys, they actually feel exactly the same. So um, there's a lot of, there there are many challenges, but Africa needs the international community. Uh, It needs it desperately. In particular, it needs its um, investment and engagement. And it needs it across the board, whether you're speaking of building stability uh, and so on. But you can only, in a sense, get behind success. And and we've seen uh, generally the criticism that is leveled against development assistance aid is that um, it helps corrupt governments and so on. But it, it also alleviates deep-seated poverty in certain instances and helps to build capacity. So Africa needs the international community, particularly the United Nations, because what we've seen is that the best recipe for long-standing conflicts is a multinational peacekeeping force that is deployed and that stays in the country for decades. It still is the best return on investment of any kind of investment, and that's gone out of fashion. Uh, so, for deep-sea, for countries with deep-seated problems, you deploy a peacekeeping mission that stays in country for a few decades, and eventually that country emerges uh, with stability. And so, that's on the human sec- on the on the security side. But Africa needs investment. It needs to be de-risked, uh, de-risked, whatever the correct term is, in terms of getting foreign direct investment and making it clear that countries will will help and facilitate investment on the continent. Again, we need to get our own house in order, provide a solid, a predictable, stable rule of law environment in which an, um, investment can occur. So all of these, you know, so we, we, without international investment, without a trade, Africa will not develop. Globalization has done more to lift people out of poverty than anything else, even though the world is changing. Uh, so uh, all of that needs to happen. There's no magic solution.
1: Let me allow you to have a little fun uh, in a short time as we ha- give, I throw the last question at you. You're a, you're a forecaster. Where will Africa be, except for, besides the large-scale population growth, where will Africa be in 2050?
3: Africa will still, uh, in terms of its population size, um, relative to the size of its economy, not, uh, we, we won't be batting at the right level. Um, But because we are 55 countries within the Africa Union, and it is a source of uh, trade and competition globally, its diplomatic and other influence is growing. Uh, And it it will, in a a certain sense, um, Africa is probably diplomatically, politically going to emerge as a kind of a swing region. What happens in Africa is going to be very important, particularly for Europe. Uh, You only have to look at the the issues around um, migration and and so on and so forth. So we will both be a potential market for the future. If you want to invest in, if if you're looking for the last unexplored market, this is the place to come. Uh, Large opportunities, but we will also, we could also be a huge threat, particularly to Europe, source of instability. Uh, and the the, the 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 international community look um, sta- steps away from Africa in a sense. Given our large population, almost at its own own risk, uh, there needs to be ongoing engagement on the continent, and there. You know, we speak at, a, at it as if it's, of course, one country. It isn't it's very diverse. And there are large areas of the continent that are very s- stable. There are seven, eight countries which are highly unstable. And the narrative from them tends to dominate everything. We think that, uh, you know, when there's uh, violence in South Sudan, that the entire region is unstable. We don't recognize that Kenya is probably one of the fastest, most dynamic uh, economies in the world.
1: Dr. Jackie Sillier's- Thank you so much for joining us on Altamar today.
3: Thank you very much for the invitation. I hope that was of any use. (laughs) It was great. Peter, that was an
0: amazing tour around Africa that covered so many subjects. I'm left with a couple of things. One is the whole idea of development versus democracy and the democracy surplus, which gives me an idea for a future podcast. And the other is the very out of fashion concept of investment and engagement in a world that looks so insular, I think still continues to be the the, the magic bullet and the solution for not only for Africa, but for engagement around the world.
1: Yeah. Two things jump out at me, Muni, about this. First is that Africa continues to not be the basket case that everybody thinks it is. And I think what Dr. Silliers pointed out, unfortunately, is that it's not only the man on the street that thinks that Africa is the basket case, but unfortunately, it is the sophisticated investor that is fearful of going to Africa and is watching the Chinese basically sort of dominate Africa when that's absolutely not necessary. And the second thing is, the importance of this free trade agreement among African countries and how the ability for labor to move from country to country is going to be critical for Africa's continued growth.
2: For me, it's as a business owner, the the labor part really stood out, and you know, I, I think there's lots of positives here, but Africa really needs to step it up, and and like he said, you know, they need to. Um, they need to step up the African countries themselves and labor is a, is a big weakness, I think with, um, with where, where the future is going with technology. So hopefully, um, they can turn that around with a lot of young, young labor there. You can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us on Apple podcasts. Also sign up for a bi-weekly free newsletter, which is really amazing for analysis on global trends. We'll see you next time.